Imagine you're a teenager or a young adult and you start using a fun new app that all your friends are using. When scrolling through your feed, you see one content creator mention how they realized their inattention and procrastination was actually ADHD. You keep scrolling and another explains how, when I get anxious, I clean for two hours and that is how I know I have ADHD. After scrolling for half an hour, you relate to so many of these stories by supposed experts, influencers, and everything in between, and your feed overflows with videos about mental conditions. You become more and more convinced that you yourself might have ADHD, and part of you finds comfort in this newfound identity and internet community. Social media is a global phenomenon with over 2 billion people regularly using it, a number that is expected to increase given the spread of internet access across the world. Some platforms like TikTok, a social media platform based on short videos and personalized algorithms, have been rapidly adopted by the public, especially adolescents and young adults. During the COVID-19 pandemic, TikTok seemed to be a way for young people to connect and share with each other about mental health struggles. TikTok became a popular source of information for teens, offering personal connections and potential explanations for relatable behaviors. But with the spread of platforms like TikTok, many issues also arise. How exactly is TikTok and social media in general affecting our brains? How did the COVID-19 pandemic lead to an online mental health epidemic? How much information is actually accurate and trustworthy? Is there potential for social media to be a credible form of science communication? In this episode, we're going to dive deeper into these questions and discuss the controversial topic that is the use of social media as a primary source of information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. It's me again. For those who don't know me yet, my name is Ev, and I am your host for this season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's University, and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in central nervous system disorders. Today, I'm talking with Elena again. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Hello again. I'm Elena, also a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's. My research focuses on exploring eating behavior and circadian dysfunction and mood disorders, as well as novel tools for assessment and treatment. Along with some other amazing grad students, we've put together a podcast series as part of an outreach program with the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. The podcast is entirely student-run and researched, and we tackle a variety of topics relating to cutting-edge research or controversies in the field of neuroscience. Our goal is to take you past the headlines and make you think twice about mainstream media topics relating to the brain and human behavior. Diving right into today's topics, we'll be chatting about a super relevant and controversial subject that is the link between social media and mental health information, and in some cases, misinformation. But putting this misinformation content aside for a second, we know that in general, the repeated use of social media is not good for our brains, right? Yeah, there are a few ways that social media can broadly influence the brain, which I think is super interesting and important for people to know. It all comes back to an important brain chemical known as dopamine, often referred to as the molecule of more or the feel-good chemical. Historically, dopamine functioned to keep us alive. For example, if we were thirsty, finding and drinking water releases dopamine. 
Need food? Finding some berries gives you some dopamine. Social interaction gives you dopamine. Sex gives you dopamine, and so on. But in the modern world, this can look like different things like buying a new pair of shoes you've been wanting or eating really calorically dense foods like donuts. And similarly, social media is a source of immediate dopamine and gratification without any real effort needed. You see so many different people and situations without even leaving your couch. Therefore, you start to crave it. And suddenly you find yourself scrolling mindlessly for hours, which I know is something we've all been guilty of. And social media 100% takes advantage of this. It keeps people online by intermittent random reward. So basically, not so much interesting content, but once in a while there's content that is super interesting. Ultimately, your brain thinks it's doing what it's supposed to do because it's getting dopamine and it really latches onto that. Hmm. That kind of sounds like gambling now. You don't win every time and you know that going into it, but that one time you do makes you keep coming back for more. Exactly. And just like gambling or any other vice, really, addiction to social media has been shown to alter brain activity in our reward circuits. So brain imaging has shown really scary similarities between social media addicts and drug-dependent brains, including alterations in regions involved in emotion, attention, motivation, and decision-making. When you continuously get dopamine, the threshold goes up and up, and this can have very detrimental effects on motivation. And when I say threshold, I just mean the amount that's required to elicit the same effect. So this all may explain why people are increasingly on social media, and we could do a full episode on how modern society influences or takes advantage of our dopamine levels, but that's not the point of this episode. Maybe a future one. Of course. Another way social media negatively influences our mind is through unhealthy levels of comparison with other people, especially considering the amount of different people we see online and the information provided makes their lives look perfect. Using less social media is linked to significant decreases in depression and loneliness, and this has been shown in the literature repeatedly, especially in younger people who are using these platforms the most. For example, a recent study by Lou et al. investigated the association between time spent on social media and depression in adolescents, and they did this based on the systematic review and meta-analysis of 26 studies. So basically, they combine the results from these 26 studies and analyze them all together to increase the statistical power. They found a strong association between time spent scrolling and risk of depression. So the risk of developing depression increased by 13% for each hour increase in social media use. And this is a highly concerning result and is complemented by a lot of other work in the field that links social media use and mental suffering. Although I do want to mention that many authors note some limitations which require larger controlled studies. To really understand the relationship between social media use and mental health, we need to figure out how different factors influence these findings. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but those results really aren't that surprising to me. You know, people always seem to have such a fascinating life on social media and it's natural to compare yourself or your life to what you see. And when you're young on top of that and you don't necessarily realize that it isn't real, in fact, you know, most of it isn't real, that can be really difficult for your self-esteem and it can really make you question yourself and, you know, all of your life choices. The first example that comes to my mind is the whole fitness content creator industry. You know, fitness influencers share images that are in the right angle, with the right lighting, with optimal clothing on them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And for someone who has poor self-image in the first place, it can be really hard to compare yourself to someone that looks like that. 
That being said, some of them are now actually sharing pictures or videos of the way that their bodies look when it isn't in those perfect conditions. And I believe that might actually help people realize their bodies don't look perfect all the time. And their lives aren't fascinating all the time either. Everything you see on social media, you really have to take with a grain of salt. It's so true. And it's really unfortunate we don't have time to cover this today, but the link between social media and body image is such an important topic in itself. Young people viewing that kind of content or watching extreme diet videos can be so damaging to their future relationship with food and their bodies. It is always nice to see influencers sharing more realistic content, though. But moving on from the general impact of social media use on the brain, there is emerging concern that the information that is provided on social media can also be extremely harmful. Yeah, and this is the main topic of controversy we'll be talking about today. You know, social media has infiltrated all of our lives in some way or another, and many people see it as a main way to get their information. Just one example that we mentioned before is TikTok, which has become so popular. It really has, which makes this even more important. Information on TikTok is user-generated and not sufficiently monitored or peer-reviewed. And the popularity of the information featured on the platform is purely based on how long the video was watched, how many views it received, and how much it was shared and commented on or liked. It has nothing to do with how accurate or inaccurate the information is. Mm -hmm. And that can be dangerous for any topic when you think about it, but especially those related to health. Yeah, and the topic of mental health has become a trending topic on social media over the past few years. Young people are even using it as a search engine for this kind of content on TikTok. And the hashtag mental health has been searched more than 67 billion times, according to one study. Wow. (laughs) Does that mean that people actually think that TikTok is a valid search engine or just that they're trying to find something that they relate to on it? You know, and another important question here, does the algorithm have something to do with this? I suspect the more it gets searched up, the more it automatically fills that word in for other users, too. Yeah, most platforms do operate with an algorithm. So if you search or like or even watch a lot of certain content, the platform will feed you more and more of that same content. For example, on Instagram, the platform takes note of previous posts that you interacted with and the popularity of a post to determine whether or not it's going to suggest it to you. And the same thing happens when you see a targeted ad for something you were just talking with your friend about. On TikTok, it has the infamous For You page for this exact purpose. So it can become a really dangerous thing when you're repeatedly shown people explaining the same things. It makes it easier to believe, even if it has no legit scientific basis. An example of this, a study by the Center for Countering Digital Hate, actually posed as 13-year-old users and searched and liked mental health-related videos. They found that TikTok pushed a certain kind of really harmful content to the users on average every 39 seconds. Wow. Yeah, and there were even some recommendations for content about suicide within the first three minutes of joining the app. And in the same study, they created another account posing as a 13-year-old and included the word lose weight in the username. After going through the app for only a few minutes, this account was served 12 times more self-harm and suicide-specific videos than standard accounts. And this just goes to show how apps like TikTok can push harmful content to the users that are actually most vulnerable to it. And this highlights a big issue with the algorithm-based design. I do want to note that I don't think these platforms are doing this on purpose. Um, It's most likely a result of the algorithm, which makes it seem like the app is exploiting your vulnerabilities to try and keep you online. 
Nonetheless, it's still a very important issue that needs to be solved. Yeah, that's really awful. And even if proposing harmful content isn't done on purpose, I would imagine there could be a lot of financial incentives here and targeted advertising, right? Yeah, exactly. Misinformation has the potential to perpetuate health-related anxiety, and there's a concern that predatory advertisements about mental health are targeting these vulnerable individuals by things like for-profit telehealth companies. So basically, social media could make you super anxious that you aren't well, and then also simultaneously push ads in your face uh, for ways to prevent or treat whatever condition you're anxious about, for, for money, of course. And creators themselves are being approached by these companies to do paid advertisements on their behalf. For example, they're trying to sell things like teletherapy, telepsychiatry, supplements for mental health, and other wild products, and usually without having the necessary medical training to prescribe these things. This is probably especially relevant because qualified therapists are really expensive, let's be honest, and increasingly hard to find. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone can afford to pay for those expensive services out of pocket. So they may find some kind of hope in smaller payments, even if the person they're paying it to um, is potentially completely unqualified. For sure. Yeah. One company known as Cerebral is actually under investigation for over-prescribing stimulants. And they had spent $14 million on TikTok advertising. Wow. Yeah. A more popular online therapy company known as BetterHelp has received some scrutiny by hiring influencers to advertise for them without properly indicating important details about their terms of service. Yeah, that's crazy. And I'll be honest with you, I have seen or heard ads for both of those very recently, you know, including in podcasts. And another thing that I'm interested in here is the whole idea of self-diagnosis that has been on the rise, you know. I've been hearing a lot about the increase in ADHD self-diagnosis as a result of TikTok. Is this true? I'm sure there's a bunch of other disorders too that are increasingly being self-diagnosed. Yeah, content related to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD is one of the most popular health-related topics on the platform, consumed by millions of viewers around the world. And there's also been a rise in potential diagnoses for this condition, which may be related to the prevalence of ADHD content on TikTok. It would be interesting to look at the content on this platform and see how much of it is actually false or even dangerous. Yeah, actually, a recent study by Young et al. conducted a formal analysis on this topic by evaluating the top 100 most popular videos about ADHD on TikTok. And the results were very concerning. They found that 52% of the videos were classified as misleading, while only 21% were useful. And the majority of those misleading videos were uploaded by non-healthcare practitioners. That really is concerning. You know, is TikTok doing anything about this? Well, apparently when this information was brought to TikTok, they refused to give an interview, but did provide a statement basically saying that, well, you know, we'll remove misinformation that causes significant harm to individuals. But yeah, have they actually done this? I'm not sure. I mean, and how could they even do this if they wanted to when it seems like a consequence of the algorithm that forms the basis of their platform? I'm really not an expert on the inner workings of their platform, but I mean, I doubt they are going through and fact-checking every single TikTok to weigh the potential impact on their viewers' mental health. Yeah, definitely not. And So healthcare professionals on their end, they saw a significant rise in people coming in and saying they think they have ADHD with 
no real symptomatic evidence, right? Yeah, that's one theory. It's pretty well known that rates of anxiety and depression increased during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which could be why the use of hashtags anxiety and depression increased. But this doesn't really explain um, an increase in hashtags about ADHD, which has a relatively low prevalence and diagnostic rate, which has been shown to not significantly increase in the past two years, or at least this is what the data shows. So what could be responsible then for this increase in ADHD-related content? One could say that it's an increase in our societal efforts to reduce mental health stigma, or maybe ADHD specialists are turning to social media as a novel way to spread their information. I mean, both of these explanations would be great, but maybe it has more to do with the psychological state of the consumers. Yeah, it all seems pretty dangerous, especially since the majority of users are younger and, you know, still finding their place in the world. Right. We know that adolescence is a very important time for self-development and the formation of one's personal identity. And it's also known that a lot of the identity that developing adolescents construct can be based on their social interactions and, you know, different group affiliations. Remember the COVID-19 pandemic? (laughs) Yeah, not the most social time of my life. You know, my by far the most isolating experience I've ever had in my life. And I imagine it was the same for most people. Yeah, same. (laughs) And yeah, this type of profound loneliness and isolation and increased depression or anxiety that one can experience during a pandemic also goes along with the inability to participate in community events or social gatherings. Basically, it's possible that this time was highly conducive to online social communities since in-person ones were not really accessible. That makes sense. Even now, you know, we haven't fully recovered all of our in-person communities. We're slowly seeing large social gatherings. Yes. (laughs) We're slowly seeing large social gatherings start up again, but it's not nearly as much as it was pre-COVID. That being said, I can see how this can lead to people identifying with groups or labels based on what they participate in online, regardless of how strong the evidence is to back it up. The other thing, too, is that these platforms, you know, like TikTok, they can highly romanticize these conditions. Yeah. And I mean, how can we really blame them? There's such a massive sea of super accessible and digestible online information in the forms of these TikToks and, you know, YouTube videos, short pop science articles. These types of formats are way easier to understand compared to the super dense scientific papers that are, if I'm being honest, usually boring and full of jargon. Yeah, they're actually pretty hard to read, too, and to understand. And, you know, in this kind of content, like what TikTok is proposing, um, often dilutes or diminishes the seriousness of the disorder. That's from my understanding, at least. Yeah, it's very true. And I mean, ironically, even though some may feel pressured to self-identify to become part of this online community, people also want to define themselves against the norms of the diagnosis. And this leads to certain symptoms of this disorder being highlighted over others, even minuscule things that are most likely not a part of the disorder at all in an attempt to produce novel content. I guess in some cases, the lines between the true disorder or true mental illness and relatability get blurred in the process. They do. And I mean, for those listening and thinking, you know, what is a true mental illness? Broadly, the definition is basically a bunch of conditions that are characterized by a lot of disorganization of personality, mind, emotions, and it impairs your normal psychological functioning and causes a lot of daily distress. Much of what is advertised on these platforms does not fall in this category, leading people without a mental disorder to believe they may have one. 
Mm, yeah, and I can imagine how this has implications for the healthcare system. For sure. Clinicians and the general public should be aware of the spread of misinformation on social media. I think this issue really reflects a lack of trustworthy and accessible information about science and health from credible sources. Yeah, and people are turning to what they know and influencers they trust for the answers to their health-related problems. You know, they grow a bond with these people online, which is great and a beautiful thing in some way. But it can also be pretty dangerous, especially if the influencer has no official background in the subject they're talking about. Exactly. And the person giving advice or sharing their experience doesn't have any way of knowing or detecting how much distress someone is in on the receiving end. And this could delay them from getting the appropriate help that they need. Yeah, from my understanding, most influencers are pretty good about stating when they're sharing information due to personal experience and stating that people should still seek medical attention. But is that really doing enough? You know, often with these fast videos on TikTok, that small disclaimer isn't even communicated. The content is still out there and can be highly harmful. A report from December indicated that over a thousand families are pursuing lawsuits against social media companies like TikTok, claiming that the content profoundly impacted the mental health of their children and in some cases helped lead to their death. Mm. I would suspect a lot of these cases have progressed since the report was released, though. Yeah, and I think we can all agree that when it comes to the topics like politics or drama from the entertainment industry... There's definitely misinformation everywhere that you turn, but we have to remember that when it comes to mental health, this is a much more psychologically impactful issue. You know, what can we do if someone self-diagnoses based on social media content, you know, from the view of a clinician or a parent or even a friend? Well, when someone brings up that they think they have a certain mental condition, this is not to be taken lightly. I don't want the presence of misinformation online to discredit those that are really suffering with a mental condition like ADHD or depression. We don't want to go backwards in our fight to destigmatize these terrible conditions. Mm -hmm, For sure. I do think it's important to collect the information in a compassionate way and take a non-judgmental approach when handling a potential self-diagnosis. As a clinician or parent, maybe you ask the individual why they think they have a certain condition and what it would mean to them if they do or don't have the diagnosis. Yeah, and like you said, that's just the thing, you know. Some people might actually realize that they have a mental illness because of a video that they saw on some form of social media. And it really is important to be non-judgmental in supporting these people. Not everything you see on social media is good. But it definitely isn't all bad either. For sure. Social media, I mean, it has the potential to promote the spread of open access, reliable scientific information, and that has the potential to help a lot of people. To give it some credit, I think sharing personal experiences on social media, it's one of the main ways that mental health conditions are starting to be destigmatized in our society. Yeah, and luckily there are some licensed clinicians and qualified scientists on, on those platforms that have been doing some great work providing you know, evidence-based information. However, we do need to find a way to remove or at least discredit misinformation and verify knowledge to minimize harm and, you know, maximize the benefit to the public. Yeah, and there are so many of those so-called reverse influencers out there. So qualified individuals who are trying to debunk um, and correct misinformation that's out there and provide accurate and reliable information on these topics instead. 
Some argue that education for all influencers could be a viable route. For example, I found a really interesting pilot study from the University of Southern California, which basically has the goal to create a program for influencers and content creators to educate and train them on how to create responsible mental health content. That's really interesting. I just assumed that the first thing they would do is kind of censor a lot of mental health related content. Some do argue that censorship could be an option, although I think it could be really dangerous to completely eliminate certain types of content from the internet altogether. Mm -hmm. That would be the beginning of a very dangerous road. Uh, Free speech and engagement in constructive conversations about science and health is how we maintain rationality in our society. So limiting this in our online communities is not really an option, in my opinion. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's much less intimidating to go through tough times when you know you aren't alone to be dealing with it. Another thing is we're seeing this with ADHD now. But the next one, you know, it could be bipolar disorders or OCD, et cetera. We just we can't just wait around for each trend to pass when millions of people are being negatively affected or harmed by this. Exactly. I think instead we need to use social media as a form of responsible science communication. We don't have all the answers on how this can be accomplished, but we do hope this episode could stimulate discussion on the topic and more awareness for those that routinely use social media. We can't forget that there are real people's lives being influenced by this issue. For sure. Most of us have observed firsthand the severe devastation that mental illnesses can bring upon someone, whether it be depression, ADHD, anxiety, bipolar disorder. This is not something that I would wish upon anyone. Ultimately, what matters most in this controversial topic is the mental well-being of people. We need to have empathy for the difficult time that it is being a young person and forming your concept of identity. So let's all try to give each other as much compassion as possible. Agreed. Be kind. Be compassionate. Doesn't cost you anything. Preach. (laughs) And um, do you have any words for someone who might be struggling with identity or a potential or actual mental illness diagnosis? Definitely. I would say it's completely normal to crave a sense of community. And further, there's nothing wrong with having a diagnosed mental illness or undiagnosed struggles with your mental well-being. But that being said, you're all really multifaceted individuals and there's so much more to your identity than your diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's also important to remember that mental health status does lie on a continuum. You can sort of think of it like zero to 100. For example, with mood, closer to zero might be like feeling some anxiety due to an upcoming presentation or a first date. And that can be so normal and actually a good thing because it means you care and you're invested in these aspects of your life. It's when your mood reaches closer to the other side, closer to 100, when it really becomes an issue. Specifically, if it's impairing your life and ability to function in your daily tasks. So if you're so anxious that you can't leave your house or it keeps you up all night, that's when it could be crucial to explore resources. Finally, if you're struggling, please seek help immediately from a licensed professional. Your concerns and fears will be best accommodated in that sphere, not on TikTok or other social media platforms. Very well said. So take care of yourselves out there. In conclusion... Social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram are great resources for staying in touch with your friends and your family or having a good laugh about some animal videos. But when it comes to mental health, social media is not the resource you need 
and you should not be diagnosing yourself based on the information you find there. Last, be kind and compassionate to each other. And if you're struggling with mental health, please seek assistance from a professional. On that note, thank you, Elena, for joining me today to discuss this incredibly important and relevant topic. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. We want to give our listeners the opportunity to be part of our next episode, which will focus on grad school, the process of getting in, preparing, and surviving grad school. If you have any questions that you would like us to answer in the episode, click the link in the description and ask away. I have one last important message for our listeners. Unfortunately, due to budget cuts in the Center for Neuroscience Studies, we are no longer being financially supported to produce this podcast. But have no fear, we're not going anywhere. We love what we do and we aren't going to be giving up anytime soon. So how can you help this podcast? We are now accepting donations and other external funding sources, which go 100% to having our episodes professionally edited and published on our various platforms. Without the editing, the episodes would be about two hours long of me mostly going off topic. And let's be honest, no one wants that. So if you would be willing to donate, please email us at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, if you're part of the Queen's University community, feel free to reach out and volunteer with us. We're always looking for students who are passionate about science translation and evidence-based content creation to join our team. No previous podcast experience needed. You can just DM us on our social media or shoot us an email at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. And remember to tell all your friends, your family, and everyone in between to listen to our podcast so we can really get that reach out there. And on that note, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice. And as they say, see you next time.